Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. All right. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ryan. Thanks for joining us today, Ryan. Ryan is KJ's cousin and works in the film industry, helping to release independent films, including the upcoming All Roads to Perla and Anonymous Killers. Ryan also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by KJ. We will be jumping into the horror mystery sci-fi film called Time Crimes by Nacho Vigalando, who is also known for Extraterrestrial, Open Windows, and Colossal. Other big movies in Spain in 2007 include Fermat's Room, a science puzzler thriller, Goal 2, Live in the Dream, a soccer movie, and The Bourne Ultimatum. Now, KJ, tell us a little bit about the plot and why you thought this would be a fun one for us to discuss today. Time Crimes is a time travel movie with a guy named Hector who is at one point searching for a woman in the forest who he had seen through his binoculars. Hector is then stabbed by a man with red bandages on his face. So Hector runs up to a nearby science facility to try to get away from the bandaged man and get medical help. And he ends up in a time machine that transports him back about two hours. He crashes a car and injures his head and he wraps his head in bandages so he realizes he was the bandaged man. And we spend the rest of the movie seeing multiple Hectors interact until the conclusion where Hector saves his wife, but unfortunately sacrifices that woman that he was looking for in the forest. So I stumbled upon a list of sci-fi movies that you must see, or it was a website with you know top 10 sci-fi movies. So I wrote them all down, probably in a spreadsheet. And one of the first ones on the list that I came across was Time Crimes. So I wasn't really sure what to expect uh, because prior to this movie, I'd really only seen Hollywood sci-fi films like from the 90s onward, which were big budget, special effects heavy spectacle types. This is not that. I fell in love with this movie and realized that smaller sci-fi films could be just as, if not more impactful than the big budget sci-fi films. And I've always wanted to talk about this movie. So here we are today. How about you, Tom? My reading of the film is is that it is about the impossibility of free will, that what we see with this man is that he can't generate independent actions from the from what has already been set down. So we have Hector One sitting at his home, looking with binoculars out onto the forest surrounding the testing lab, and everything he's seeing has to happen. That's kind of the the, the consequence of what the movie set up. Um, what I found kind of a problem for me with this movie is I found the character of Hector to be so deeply unlikable um, and also um, uh, not particularly open to us that the my desire to follow this man through his his challenge was lessened. Also, if we're going to see three different versions of Hector, which we do, you would imagine that the the different versions of him reveal a different side or a different nature to the man. The problem with this is Hector is so little of who Hector is is ever exposed 
that the the different facets of who this man is it's just not really there um and so the paradox of the situation becomes the whole of the situation and we're then forced to spend it with this kind of unlikable kind of creepy peeping tom who who gets himself involved in the situation as far as i can tell because he wants to take a look at a woman's breast who's has no idea that he's he's doing this um hence peeping tom so those are my problems or my reservations with the picture uh how about you nick what, what were your thoughts okay i'm gonna go back step back in a, a different direction here for a moment and i've known kj since the fifth grade so i could be pretty blunt with kj and and the audience here and tom and i even go back what i think pre-k so Sometimes KJ comes up with these movies that are completely off the beaten path. And to say I'm cautious, I, I might even say I'm skeptic before I, I jump into these movies. And sometimes I feel like it's obscure for obscurity's sake. However, when I started watching this movie, I did think this would be a fun one to talk about. Um, there was another one we watched, Why Don't You Play in Hell? I couldn't get into it. And I think it went further up in KJ's most beloved movies list after that conversation. But this one, I, I, it was enough to keep me intrigued. I, I did want to follow along. And when you get into these time-traveling sci-fi, I am a little bit hooked in the sense that I'm just trying to figure out if it actually could happen, if it makes sense the way they're portraying it, do things line up correctly? Is it a very soft time travel like our prior Back to the Future trilogy episodes? Or are they trying to be more firm in what true science fiction might actually be, what could actually happen? So I did enjoy that. I, I think it's going to be worth uh, talking about here today and, and really getting into some interesting conversation. Is it my favorite movie ever? No. Is it one of my more favorite obscure KJ movies? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So, um, Ryan, any initial thoughts on this one? Well, I'm going to have to write down whatever that other one was that is now high on the KJ list because uh, I think that's a vote of confidence for whatever that film was. Um, yeah, this one was funny. KJ asked me if I had seen it. Um, I initially said yes, then I had to backtrack and say no because I realized I had confused it with Kronos, which is a Guillermo del Toro movie. Um, and then, of course, I sat down to watch it and was like, oh, it's this one. So I at least had the grim satisfaction of immediately ruining it for my partner, Eli, because I was like, he's the guy in the bandage. I've seen this. And so so unfortunately, it, that the watching of it this time, I didn't really remember it, but it did have a sort of campiness to it because... I was aware of what the, the shtick was a little bit from the beginning, um, but I'm glad we're going to talk about it because I read a few articles since then, um, and it seems like you know in the in the um, subgenre of like the meeting yourself time loop subgenre of of time travel movies, um, this one's taken really seriously or it's well, well respected, and you know there was a lot of like kind of you know semi serious uh, criticism about it, and so I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about like you know, how it all works and had making some sense out of it. And I'm glad I got a chance to, to watch it for maybe the second time, maybe the first time. Sounds great. And I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot to unpack here, whether it's your favorite or your least favorite or somewhere in between. Now, of course, uh, when we have a guest on, the whole episode relies on this pivotal question of what snack do you recommend while watching this movie to maximize the enjoyment? Well, you know, I was going to give this a lot of thought, but I didn't really have to because it seems incredibly obvious that the best thing to watch it with is with red vines, because not only are they delicious, but they can serve as a very helpful visual aid when you're discussing it afterwards. So you can use these to sort of explain to the person you're with how you think the plot is working. That is a very smart answer. <laughs> so... 
And it Kudos. was the obvious choice. I didn't even have to think about it very long. Although you have also given us some more information, red vines versus Twizzlers, right? You're in the red vine camp here. I, I guess I have. <laughs> it's time for Movie Quiz. All right. We have two rounds of questions, two questions in each round. This is round one. Each question will be worth one point. And the categories are like a reflection and time as a setting. So Ryan, what would you like to start with? Time as a setting. It's time for question one. There are only a few sets in Time Crimes, but they all felt very distinct, yet nondescript. This is a subjective question. What is your favorite setting? Locked in. I'll say locked in. I'm going to say locked in as well. All right. Tom, what do you got? I'm going to say the the house, especially in the last act of the movie, um, because the house, when it, it's kind of open and under construction and um, kind of always unbuilt, I, I think that kind of... Um, that sort of reflects on the, the the plot itself, which is always circular, always unfinished, always under construction, right? We're always going to be repeating this loop over and over again. It's never going to be kind of solved or fixed. And I think the, the house where the most damage is done uh, reflects that. Okay. And Ryan? From a purely a filmmaking standpoint, I couldn't help but... The, think about the lab and, you know, with the, the top that gets lowered, just because the, uh, as KG pointed out, there's such a, um, a well done kind of low, high concept, low budget world of sci-fi out there. The, the probably the best known coming to mind would be Primer. Um, and they're just that one, they get into a box as the time machine. And so you just have to hand it to them for like, just doing it on such a low budget. Uh, so this one, I was like, how did he pull that off? Like, where did he find that lab? So, you know, I, I now like I, that was such a beautiful first answer that mine's purely from like a filmmaking budgetary standpoint that uh, I was just really impressed wherever they found that the and the silo, not just, you know, the first part of the lab, but that silo. How did they how did they pull that off? And what is presumably a low budget movie? Okay, mine won't be as eloquently put as Tom's was, but I had the same thing. It was the house. Uh, particularly in the end sequence, uh, the chaos of going through it and, and everything that happens in there. I, I think that was the most compelling scene, or not scene, uh, set. All right, and points go to Ryan. I loved that lab. I loved every part of that lab. Like Part of it felt like a cafeteria almost. It felt like a, a college um, where the students hang out. What's that called? And it's never really explained. No. Why is, and student union. Student union, yeah. yeah. And why is there a lab so close to their house? They didn't know there was a lab when they bought the house. Like, <laughs> I, I loved how none of that really made sense, but you could walk there, right? He walked there. He, I mean, he ran, but he, he got there on foot. So I, I, I really liked like what Ryan was saying on the low budget. I thought the lab was really cool. I thought their yard was a great uh, set. Just those chairs where they looked out to the forest where they can kind of see the road. Again, it didn't make much sense. But, but not the lab. But yeah, but not the lab. Exactly. Um, I also liked when, when the, the poor woman who met her demise at the end stumbles across the house. She's so happy. She's like, look, I found a house. And, and so, like, how did she not know the house was there? <laughs> so there seems to be a decent chunk of woods between the, the lab and the house. Uh, and it's also all new, right? They've just, they just seem to have gotten this house when they move in. The first thing 
he sees out of the binoculars is the lab, right? There's like the top of the silo. Um, when he first looks, it's not, it's not the, it's not the, it's, he's not quite a peeping Tom yet. Um, so, and, and you give him the impression he's not seen that before. Uh, so it seems like they're, they're not really that familiar with the, this area. This is all, all new. It's pretty rural area too, because even when the girl comes by with the bike, I believe she doesn't have signal on her phone. Uh, so I think this is, is much more spacious. And as Tom was saying in that scene, I think he even sees the antenna or something on top of the silo. It's, and that's in with the, with the heavy duty binoculars. So I, I think there is a, quite a distance between the lab and him, but it may also be one of those cases where that is your neighbor. So I had cousins who lived in upstate New York and they're on the top of a mountain and there's three other houses on the whole street. So they are technically neighbors, but it's miles down the road. But speaking to Ryan's point, um, and you know, the reference to Primer, which also has uh, you know, very, very similar movie to this, even though Primer, I, I think honestly, Primer is impossible to follow without like an internet guide <laughs> to go along with it for anybody who's seen it. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's. It, I find that movie frustrating for that reason. It's like an engineering problem more than more than a picture. But with with this and with Primer too, the kind of the low budgetness really um, is really wonderful. And we we keep forgetting about the original low budget science fiction movie, which was Star Wars, which had to use Episode Four had to use the same three or four or eight storm trooper costumes and whatnot which gave that movie a sort of lived in feel and the lab here doesn't feel kind of chic sci-fi it doesn't feel military protected you get the impression that it's a a sort of research lab the likes you would see at a a university or, or college or something like that um and the kind of looseness or lackness gives it uh, kind of, you know, a more realistic feel. Like he has to, the, the character who's in the lab, who's um, kind of sparked the trouble, uh, he stops what he's doing to, you know, get a cappuccino and things like that. And those little bits of detail give the the setting a, um, yeah, give, give the setting a, a kind of a homely or realistic tint. When I was watching this, I, I wasn't quite aware of the, like, low budget nature of this although from watching it i do understand now that there was a low budget and i do appreciate when movies make a lot of what they with what they have this budget uh, what i'm seeing here is estimated about 2.6 million unfortunately even though i did enjoy this movie uh, it seems like when it was released that maybe it didn't get enjoyed by audience or they didn't know about it because it does not seem like uh, they made their money back according to what I'm seeing here, cumulative worldwide is maybe a little over half a million. Uh, but I do think it, it it was worth a watch and maybe some more people who are especially interested in the time travel sci-fi genre or subgenre, it's worth a watch. I, I definitely think so. Oh, I was just going to say that it's probably box office. Um, so I'm sure that the movie probably made its money back eventually just with uh, foreign sales and, and other ways of making your money back. So uh, half a million is not bad for for a theatrical run in 2007. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is just a box office. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The uh, the sets also reminded me a lot of Solaris. The labs in Solaris were pretty empty and, and you know, they kind of look similar. And then the only other set really is the house. Uh, so similar to Time Crimes. 
Yeah, I, I'm the the idea with Solaris is that it's a rundown way station, right? It's a rundown gas station that they're living in. Um, you know, and that's you're, you're kind of sitting around looking at what the hell happened here. Um, but I think with this film, what makes the, the time travel event uh, surprising, unless you read the title, uh, is that the the lab itself is, is so just unassuming. It's so easy, right, to get into. They don't even have locks on the doors. And I think that's a, that's a big difference. There's a fence, I think, right? Yeah, there's a fence that he kind of falls over. <laughs> He did also break a window. Yeah, I guess he breaks a window to get in. But, you know, when they go, <laughs> no yeah. alarms. But when he goes <laughs> into the uh, the the actual vault or the chamber where he travels, there's no lock on that door, right? He just walks in. Yeah, I guess also it's one of those things where they don't expect visitors. There was a um, a secure gate to get in, as well as even the driveway, the electronic gate. So they, he probably wasn't expecting other visitors in this location, but you're absolutely right. It, that that was he just he just walks. Well, in. at that point, um, the young lab guy knows to let him in. Oh, we're going down this Here road already. Here we <laughs> go. Are we going? Yeah. I don't. I didn't know where your other questions were going, so I didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't know if I wanted to start going mm. down the rabbit hole already. Well, let's jump in. Yeah. So at, at that point, <laughs> uh, so the first jump in the water's fine. <laughs> the first time Hector approaches the silo, uh, the, the young assistant, or I guess he's not an assistant, the young lab rat played by the director. Who's yeah. he really? Um, the, uh, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't even <laughs> the young, uh, the young lab rat has already spoken with Hector and knows to let him in or has been encouraged to let him in anyway. He's he spoken to two Hectors <laughs> yes. by that point. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's it's none of it's a surprise. I mean, my God, what do you think that guy felt like? He turned on the machine, and two men jumped out of it as soon as he did. Yeah, and that that schlep of a Hector, like it's not even. Right? It's like the worst yeah. shape one. Yeah, it's like this like fat, bleeding, like unappealing, jaundice-colored man just falls out of this thing, and this guy's job and career are over because he is not supposed to be there that day. Well, as oh, an engineer, no, 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 his job, he like he made it. That was like as soon as he saw that guy, he knows he's he's made it. Like that's a no, success. No, because he wasn't supposed to be playing with the machine because it was the weekend. So the upper people are gonna be upset at him. Maybe, but if he plays his cards right, he's the guy that knows. He's got all the he's got weeks to document this, get the papers published, apply this wherever he can to start. He does maybe, but he does say the information we get from him is I won't be around to see it, right? Because when he he's in the he's talking to Hector too, uh, he he says, "Well, I, I've, I've been caught. Um, this will be an amazing discovery, but I won't be around to to experience it." You don't think he turned the machine on next weekend to try again with something else? I got the sense that he never wants to turn the machine on again. I, yeah. I got the different. I got the mm. different feeling here. It's one of those things like, what have I created? What have I done? You know. Yeah, but Doctor Emma Brown made the steam train. You know, you, you can't <laughs> You know my opinions on that. <laughs> I, I will also say I, I've done the math on this, and this is our fifth time travel movie out of 23 episodes which means that 21.7 percent of talking pictures trivia is devoted to the paradox of time travel <laughs> we might be a sub-genre podcast i was gonna say i'm sure that's not where it ends 
All right. The category for question two is like a reflection. It's time for question two. What is Hector's first interaction with himself? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right. Uh, Nick, what do you have? The first interaction a Hector has with the Hector is getting stabbed in the arm with scissors. So I was thinking a little bit more vaguer than that. And so more like when, when the Hector does the quick turnaround with the hands that are binoculars. So they're interacting. There's no physical contact, but that's the first time he, that I recall him seeing himself as part of the loop. I had the getting stabbed with scissors in the woods. So we got to decide how we're going to uh, assign points here. I originally also thought it was getting stabbed, right? Those scissors, bam, he gets hit in the shoulder. And that happens before, um, like he's running from that. And then he looks back and he, he sees himself through the uh, binocular thing. So the scissors certainly happened before the binoculars. But I think the phone call happens first. I think he's in the house. Oh, you're right. Kind of hanging yes. out with his wife yes. in the living yeah, room. Yeah, it does. And I think that phone oh. call is the first. Touche. Good, good, mm-hmm. good one. Well played. So we'll go, mm-hmm. yeah, no points that round. So yeah, so time travel movie. Um, what did you guys think of the actual time travel and the interactions between the Hectors? Do you think it holds up? Do you think it worked? This is where I spent most of my time when I watched this movie. The only thing, I had to bring it up at some point during this episode. The challenge for me is I have like eagle eyes for these type movies. And I think it might have ruined some of the shock for me. But somehow when he stabbed him with the scissors, there's a scene where they show the man with the pink bandages. And I noticed the wedding, the wedding ring. And it was the exact ring. So I like just, I, I don't think any, everyone would have caught that. But immediately I'm like, that's the guy. That's him. He's him. And that's how this movie's going. So I try to put that aside and really focus on the different elements to see if they all kind of work together as a, like a puzzle. And I think all of it does work. However, and this is something we'll probably talk about, I think some of it is forced to work because there's interactions that occur that are not natural interactions. I'll give you a perfect example of this. When he knows that he has to cut the other girl's hair so that his other self thinks that he just kill, accidentally killed his wife, that is not an action a normal person would take just for the heck of it. Unless you had some kind of hair fetish, there's no reason that he'd just be like, you know what, I got to cut your hair so that this whole cycle continues. That's the one that jumped out at me, but I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts about where maybe – lost its luster but i do think everything did fit but it kind of was forced and the lack of motivation for hector to do some of the things he does such as cutting the woman's hair or hector to threatening the woman in the woods to to disrobe um even though he clearly is not getting any kind of sexual gratification from it he's not even looking at her um they seem to indicate a need on his part and all three of his parts to keep the scene staged exactly as it was. And my reading of that is he has no free will in this, in this world. Uh, He might not have any free will at all. Absolutely. And the time machine has revealed that, that even actions that appear not to have motivation, like cutting her hair, 
making her take her shirt off. I mean, what, you know, what happens if she doesn't take her shirt off, right? Uh, then Hector doesn't go into the woods and we end up in a paradox. Well, in, in this world, paradox is not possible because this character doesn't have freedom or his freedom is greatly circumscribed by the circumstances as he's, as he's found them. And so I think that's kind of what the movie is doing. The movie is revealing um, not, not the kind of inevitability of, of, um, of determinism, of having determined action. Uh, it's kind of directing a finger at it, right? It seems to be pointing at the fact that this man's actions are determined. And I think that became most clear for me when he, he forces the, the young girl in the woods to disrobe because he doesn't, he does not even want to look at her when she says, should I remove my underwear? He says, I never said that. Don't do that. He clearly wants to indicate this is not something sexual. And why else then would he, would he make her disrobe? All right. End of round one. Ryan has one point. Tom and Nick are not yet on the board, but in round two, it's anybody's game. KJ, a lot of fun. Round one. We'll be right back for the rest of this. After this quick commercial break. Talking Pictures Trivia presents a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love. Read by me, Tom. Chapter 2. The Box. After school, Michael hid out in the library, trying to avoid seeing some of the people who were inclined to mock him. Nobody really beat him up, per se, but they liked to snicker. John Riley was a successful tight end and 215-pound wrestler with a clear path towards scholarship at a local college. Not a Division I, of course, but a solid private university that would offer him a decent chunk of change in exchange for his football services. Riley wasn't really a bad guy. He was somewhat bright and tutored elementary students in an urban library downtown. But always the wise-ass, Riley prodded Michael for the way Michael was dressed, or his acne. Secretly, Riley felt bad for Michael. The guy seemed lonely, and his gentle teasing was occasionally trying to open a door for conversation. But Michael, who made a monster out of his lost fight, a fight Riley actually either had forgotten about or had never learned about, always saw Riley as a classic bully in a very different high school dynamic than existed. But Michael wasn't thinking about Riley today. Today was going to be the day he asked out Jane. In order to attract her attention, he had spread out an art book on the library table, showing paintings from the Louvre. It was a Friday, and he was relaxing. Happy that he didn't have to do schoolwork tonight. Happy that he didn't have to get up early in the morning. Happy to potentially see Jane again. He closed the book and lifted up his bag, searching for a Twix bar he thought he left somewhere at the bottom. Something was down there. He reached down and found a small box with a note taped to it. The box was cardboard, and the paper was small and folded over it. He opened the note. Dear Michael, I know you've been having a tough time at school. I heard about this product on my favorite podcast, Talking Pictures Trivia. Maybe you'll like it. Mom. He leaned down, and he opened the box. 
This has been a Talking Pictures Theater presentation of a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth. A coming-of-age story of young love. This week on sale, Screaming Lapel Pins has the dilapidated penguin. Pick one up wherever Screaming Lapel Pins are sold. And we're back. KJ, take it away. All right. Welcome to round two. We're going to have two questions worth two points. So it's anybody's game. The categories are Just a Trim and Traumatico. Tom, which category would you like? Just a Trim. It's time for question three. Why did Hector stab himself? Locked in. Locked in? Yes, I have that confident locked in as well. All right, Tom, what do you have? Hector stabbed himself because Hector has to stab himself for the the causal events to occur. There is no psychological reason um, or anger or frustration on his part. He is simply responsible for continuing the cause of events. And as a kind of unthinking actor in this, he stabs because he's been stabbed. He knows that's what has to happen next. Yeah, I, that's my answer as well. Uh, you know, also peppered with a little bit of a flashback to to uh, Thomas's early answer about the free will and determinism. So just you know, rewind a few more few minutes and replay that section. I'm right there with my other contestants. Um, he has to do it. He was always going to do it. When we look back, he always did do it. All right, points for everybody. Is this a subjective? I either pick all of you or none of you. Um, so we'll do everybody. We're on the board. Yay, so, Tom. <laughs> there it is. Again. Everybody's got points. Um, <laughs> we did it, Nick. And, and Good for you. We're winners, too. Yet the movie doesn't present another reason, right? There's no... He's not trying to do it to change the future. He's not thinking, oh, if I just... If I stab this guy, he'll go away and he won't go up to the, the lab. He's not at this point thinking fourth dimensionally, uh, you know, um, I, I would I would imagine he's still kind of confused about everything. It's been less than, what, half an hour since he time traveled. So it's I, I thought it was a little strange that he would choose to stab himself a- apart from the narrative. It had to be that way. Just because the scientist has already sort of said, just sit here, I'm going to take care of it and presumably eliminate the other Hectors. So then only one is left to move forward. Um, but yeah, so he was like given specific instructions from someone presumably in the know. And yet he, you know, went out, went to great means to leave and move forward. See, I think this is both the strength and weakness of this movie. So on one part, I enjoyed that all the puzzle pieces matched and it all did flow. Cause sometimes again, going back to back to the future, they take liberties wherever they want and things happen. And Whereas this one, they really spent a lot of time to make sure it was almost like a a well-oiled machine. The only thing is, at the same time, that's the greatest weakness, as we were saying before, all of us, I think, in different parts, is that the events that unfold do not feel natural. And I do agree with everyone else who was saying that 
this was going to happen. This was the way things were going to be regardless of how he thought about it. So that was at the same time what I thought was a strength that it all flowed together was also the weakness because those elements didn't necessarily make sense to what we know about that character. He's not the peeping Tom. He's not looking to go on a rampage. Everything that kind of happened over the course of these loops seemed out of character from what we were presented to know about this individual. I think it, one of the loops was with his wife. Uh, one of the Hectors thinks that his wife is killed. And I guess at some point he kind of figures out it's not her and it's the other woman. But at one point it's a clear motivation to save his wife. Um, but it sounds like for you, Thomas, maybe if that had been an earlier sort of motivation, then you could have explained why it was so important to him to just like recreate the steps so that everything happened the same way. So then he could kind of change the, the loop. But, but yeah, the first loop through, he's just doing everything for what appears to be the sake of doing it, which is, is until you've sort of seen the whole film or had some time to reflect on it can be uh, frustrating to watch. Yeah. There, there seems to be both motivated and not motivated action or action that's simply motivated by the, the need to continue the causal loop, such as the stabbing or the undressing. There is a moment I think where he does realize the, uh, the, the kind of the, the paradox he's enmeshed himself in, which is when he goes to bandage his head after getting into a car accident. And so for our audience who, who has not seen this movie, I'll be shocked if, <laughs> if anybody listening has seen this film. Um, at, at well one, now. Yeah. At one point, he, he attempts to drive away from the center. He's told to wait, as, as you mentioned, Ryan. He attempts to, to drive away to get back to his wife, who he might think is having an affair with another man. It's, it's a little uncertain, um, even though that other man is, is him. And he crashes the car, and he goes to bandage his head and then he covers his entire face and bandages and realizes the the paradox he's in, that he is also Hector too, and that the, this causal loop is actually a real thing. And there seems to be a moment of realization there. And then his actions after that don't seem to be motivated by anything other than let's continue, continue this loop. Um, however, there are other times when he does seem to be motivated. For example, when he leaves the center to go find his wife, or when in the end, um, towards the end of the film, after night has fallen, and he's trying to protect her. And, and so we're given the, this kind of, um, this person who is at, at different times feels he can control time, feels that he has free will, is indulging the illusion that he can alter or change the course of his own history. And by the end of it, we have a man who is sitting back with his wife, um, kind of relaxing and enjoying the time together, happy that his wife is alive, but also in a certain sense, relieved of the responsibility of someone dying, right? He doesn't have to take that responsibility onto himself because there was never anything he could have done about it. I actually was curious about how this movie ended. He's sitting there with his wife and they're overlooking. However, there's a dead woman on their property. So I didn't take it as life is back to normal. It's how do we explain this dead woman on our property? And theoretically, even though he didn't mean to do it at the time, there's two ways that he killed her. One, by grabbing the foot and the other by cutting her hair so that his other version grabs the foot and she dies. So 
I thought they left it a little ambiguous in, in that regard of, is it this happy ending? Because I believe they even said the police were coming. There was other things going on at the end there. I, I don't know if it's happy. It's inevitable. When you don't, when you're attempting to solve a problem and it turns out you were never going to solve the problem, right? When you like, you try to get out of, I've not been in this problem myself, but if you try to get out of credit card debt and eventually you just declare bankruptcy because this, we were in too deep, this was never going to be solved. There is a certain relief in the inevitability of the tragedy, right? There's a certain, like, I, I am no longer responsible for this problem. And even if I've caused the problem, um, my physical body causing this problem, it's, it's nothing I can do. There's never a chance that I could have saved this woman. And so let's sit back and, and have a drink because what else are we going to do? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree that this movie is showing that in their depiction that there is no free will because that end was going to happen no matter what he did. I don't know if this jumps into the next question, but something that I definitely wanted to bring up on this show was the fizzling out of the other Hectors. So during this movie, they actually have a, a pretty interesting explanation where the, I forget the gentleman name who apparently was the director. He drives like this, almost like this zigzag line and says, this is where you are. This is where you went. And he literally says those reflections, when you get past that timeline where that reflection no longer exists, they will no longer exist. The movie doesn't address that at all, but I thought it would be fun to talk about. Do we think they just fizzle away? I don't think they fizzle out at all. They get into the time machine. When he's drawing that line, right? From Hector's perspective, we saw Hector enter the time machine, exit the time machine, enter the time machine, exit the time machine, and one more time maybe, enter and exit. That's what happened. There, there was no Marty McFly fade away. There was no, it, it's very, very simple because we all saw it from Hector's POV. He interacted with himself, but we saw every interaction from the, our current POV of Hector and we also saw the other Hector. Like we we've seen, we saw all those scenes twice. So they did tie the loop literally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. With the time machine, I just wanted to bring that up because that was when I watched this. I thought that was how it was, but I wasn't exactly sure because he said they will just cease to exist. So I want to know if there's anything deeper, or if that's just the occurrence that happened with him, or would that happen with presumably anyone else who went through? Like that loop would always tie up. I think the lab rat was just trying to motivate the current Hector because mm. I, I believe that scene was when uh, the current Hector sees his past self hanging out with his wife. So the lab rat was told by a future Hector to do whatever you can to get this Hector to leave or I forget exactly what it was. So I think he was just trying to say, if you want to be the only Hector, well, the other ones are going to fizzle out, so you better. So I, I do agree they do explain it that way, but yes. I don't think that's how it actually that, happens. No, that makes plot. sense. That makes sense because he's he's literally the whole time just saying what he needs to get the present Hector to do what actions need to be done. So that makes sense. But I just wanted to address that they did at least go through that explanation in the movie, and I didn't see necessarily a payoff on that part because I did see the tight loop, like everything flows, and that's why I was wondering. Would, would anyone ever fizzle out? But based on your interpretation, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that, that if it, was, if it wasn't him and someone else went in that and they had some crazy adventure loop, 
it would all tie up like that too. Okay, that's a good point. The only way it could fizzle out is if there was a, a change because the actions of Hector 1 lead to Hector 2, the actions of Hector 2 lead to Hector 3. Each one generates the next one, just as if we think of um, our, our future self as being generated by our present self. The only way that that alters is if the inevitability of history is not so inevitable. And since we learn that is impossible, he's just everybody's just swallowed up into Hector 3. But we've already determined and I think it was unanimous that there is no free will and this is just the way it's going to be for, with any of these interactions. Even the ones that seemed like that they were random were not random. And even the ones that seemed purposeful were just the way it was going to be. <laughs> random or purposeful, they're inevitable. Yeah. That's not the, that's not the distinction. So not unanimous. Um, I think absolutely everything that happened had to happen. But I think Hector still had free will because from his perspective, he didn't know what was going to happen. So in other words, when you pick up dice and you roll them, you could do the math of the force of your hand rolling those dice and you could know what those dice are going to come up as before you let go. But we still roll dice because we don't know what those dice are going to roll up as. Even though, again, we can do the math. We could have cameras that look at the dice and before they land, we could predict what they are. I'm pretty sure that's trivial at this point. So just because it, time and, and the future and, and in this movie, um, everything has to happen as is, because Hector doesn't know that, he still has free will to make those decisions, even though it's always going to end up the same way. From his perspective, he doesn't know what that is. So he is still making decisions. His lack of knowledge doesn't provide him with free will. In the same way that if a cue ball is hit at a particular angle at a particular force, it's going to do the same thing over and over again. Uh, you know, you could talk about quantum fluctuations or, or some crap like that, but that's not really that important with cue balls. Um, the, the fact that the cue ball has no knowledge of um, where it's going to go doesn't really matter. It's still going to go along that path. And that's the same thing with Hector. I disagree. The cue ball doesn't have a perspective. Also, the cue ball doesn't have any um, limbs. I, I don't know the right word I'm looking for here, but I, I know that I feel like I'm choosing to type. I'm choosing to speak. I'm choosing to, to shake these vocal cords and, and, and make words here. I, I know I, I, I know, you know, I think therefore I am. I, I definitely feel that even though I believe that the entire universe is like that pool table where each ball is just hitting the next one. And again, we could easily predict out everything. But because I feel like I have free will, I think there's room for both that the universe is deterministic. But because I don't know what's going to happen, I feel like I have free will. But it's an illusion. It's an illusion, though. Because no matter what the series of events happens, it's going to have happened that way. So I... I I definitely stand in the this this movie is not showcasing any level of free will and that this was the course of action that was going to happen, whether he purposely meant to do something or it was by accident. The inevitable, as Tom said before, and I think this might just be a difference of opinion, but I, I don't think this movie really showcases any element of free will. I think you might be right, Nick. In the context of this movie, Hector does seem to do things just for the sake of keeping the movie in text. You're probably right. But I like your angle. <laughs>
Yeah, you're, I mean, you're a compatibilist. You're seeing that there's room in the universe for determinism, room in the universe for free will. I, I mean, I personally believe in free will. I think there's very good evidence for that. It was actually a B-side that I did on free will and determinism. If, if anybody shameless has a, plug. a shameless <laughs> plug of my other podcast. Um, so I, the, the answer to this I'm, I'm taking from, uh, there's a thinker, Galen Strawson, who's a, a believer in determinism. And his argument is um, every action is predicated upon the, the constituents of the actor. And so if, um, if everything is arranged in such a way, then this action will, will take place, including the, the neurological makeup of the person making the decision. That is predicated on a prior state, which also involves um, a, a, a condition in which all of the constituents lead to an action. And this goes back, um, you know, the, the causal chain goes back inevitably. So to say that action comes from free will means that something has to generate unto itself, sui generis. And in Strawson's view, how can that happen since every action is predicated upon the conditions of the world as given? Ryan, I'm going to put you on the spot. I made an incorrect assumption that we were originally unanimous on the fact that this movie is saying that there is not free will and everything is determined. KJ may have taken a step in our direction, but I just wanted to clarify for our listening audience if that statement is even more incorrect or where you stand on that. Well, actually, can I respond with a question? Of course. Because, so mm -hmm. the, the, what I was thinking about this movie is that it's not even about free will. It's just that, that things are on that there's a one path that things are on, like the, the S curve that the scientists drew. So it's kind of like, would you, do you think it's kind of like the anti-sliding doors movie? Like there's definitely a thought that's like every decision you make, there's a parallel universe where a different decision was made. And like someone else is living that life with you having skipped dinner tonight. And you know, right now you're watching a movie with your wife, you know? Um, so whereas this movie seems like it's all on the same path as that, that scientist drew. So, um, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it as much about free will so much as like, whatever you do, you're still barreling towards the same direction. That just made me think of the TV show Sliders, <laughs> <laughs> where he used to go to the not so familiar or sometimes they were very close, but sometimes it was very different based on decisions that were made in right. a parallel universe type situation. I, I'm inclined to agree that they are showcasing that there is this path that will be followed. And then through our other conversation, I still do think that he's showcasing in this specific example that this is going to happen no matter what, which in my view means that there is no free will. But I, I think there are mutually exclusive thoughts about the, you know, the concepts that were occurring within the same film. Yeah, the, the multi-world thing would be the uh, would be a rational way of defending free will. There, I don't think there's any way to kind of empirically prove that, but that that's the way we kind of say yeah, free will is possible. Just imagine this infinitely large tree with infinite amounts of branches. Um, you know, I, I think that people who defend determinism would say that doesn't the that doesn't answer the prior condition question which is if everything is set up 
So this one action can occur. How is it possible that two or three or 18 separate actions can occur? How could it be that you, where does the decision to eat dinner or not eat dinner come from? One of them has to be self-generating, right? And that's the, that's the problem they have, uh, that the determinist camp has. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of answers to it in, in like quantum physics and things like that. Um, I, however, to, 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 to restrict it to this movie, uh, this little, this little um, curio that we're, we're working on, I, I don't, it, it seems to me that it's just, it's deterministic because so much of what Hector does is just not motivated, like stabbing himself. Like he just stabs himself. And then he walks around the woods putting his hands in front of his eyes like they're binoculars simply because he knows that's going to happen next. Yeah, and, and as Ryan pointed out, he's not even doing that to save his wife yet. He's, at that point in the movie, he's just doing it because the lab rat said he probably should. Shall we move on to question number four? The final question of... Uh... Let's hopefully talk about how beat up he gets through this movie. I'm really hoping that's where you're going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's time for... Question four. Of the four characters, Hector, Hector's wife, the lab rat, and the bicycle girl, who had the most traumatic experience? Locked in. Locked in also. Uh, I'm going to locked in too. All right, Nick, what do you have? So of all the characters, I actually think the one who had the most traumatic day was the bicycle girl. Because she's trying to be a good Samaritan. This guy gets in a bad crash. Next thing you know, she's getting told to go in the woods, take her clothes off. She doesn't know what's going to happen here. Is she getting raped? Is she going to be killed? Serious stuff. I think she bangs her head. There's a whole bunch of sequence where she, oh yeah, she does. And she knocks herself out. Then she finally runs away just to run into her sailor all over again. Even though it's a different Hector at that point. And it continues on and on. She has this false sense of security when he's helping her get out of the house, only to come to her demise finally at the end. So I think this woman had the most traumatic uh, sequence of events that occurred during this and every one of these loops. I'm going to cheat a little bit. So it depends on how you define trauma. So trauma, uh, you know, is either the the that which kind of changes our outlook, or trauma is the kind of deep physical damage. Um, if it comes to uh, change in outlook, I'd say that Hector is the most traumatized. Um, actually, I'm going to say Hector for both. So Hector is the most traumatized based upon his outlook because by the end of the movie, he seems to see the world in a different way than how he did at the beginning. And it seems like the the only times that we are jilted into uh, perceiving the world in an entirely new way come from either moments of like great beauty or, or great trauma. Um, and I think that, that Hector has endured that. In, in terms of physical trauma, we could say that the girl endured more because she literally died. You know, her body <laughs> endured enough physical trauma to kill her. Um, however, I'm, I'm gonna still keep it on Hector because it seems like his kind of battered, broken face and stabbed body and wet clothing. Um, it seems that all that kind of physical destruction sort of um, sort of leads or brings him to this new outlook, right? Like he needs to be 
beat up in order to see the world anew? Those are both great answers that I can't argue with both of them. And again, I also just love that we see, we can keep track of Hector based on how much physical trauma, like literally how many bruises he had. What else is swollen? That's how you know where he is in the timeline. Um, but I have to, I can't, I can't go back. I can't change my answer. So the bicycle girl was, was definitely my answer though. I, I can see arguments for both. Of course, I, I wanted at first to sort of throw a wild card because the wife is the one who's like the most upset. Like none of the other characters really ever have, they don't cry. They don't, you know, like she's the only one that's like trembling and scared and, you know, but you know, nothing's really happened to her. Like she's, she'll get over it. Um, whereas even if bicycle girl lived, she would have to to manage that sexual trauma and, you know, being preyed upon by, by the, the male attacker. So, you know, she, she, to me, seems like, yeah, can't argue with how much she went through. And that's what I was saying too. It wasn't just physical. There's a lot of emotional baggage that would have been brought on her too. I mean, serious stuff in a very tight amount of hours. Points go to Nick and Ryan. I agree that the bicycle girl she went through a lot that day. I, everybody in this movie did. As, as Ryan pointed out, the wife, like she's just home and now she's being attacked like, a, like the Halloween movie we just watched, right? It wasn't too different from um, Jamie Lee Curtis or somebody in that. Um, and even the lab rat who you could say caused all this, he must have been terrified when these disfigured men came out of that machine and were like demanding that he do things and threatening his life as well. So yeah, I think everybody had a pretty traumatic experience in this um but i really liked that the movie was small enough to only have four characters and they all again had a a, a traumatic experience yeah I do, I do like what you said about um ryan about the, the we can we know what checker we're on because of how many bruises are on his face <laughs> it's 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 kind of like this and he's already like a deeply unattractive man to start with He's like this. He is he is the ideal of a non-leading man in a leading man role. It's always kind of a red flag in independent films when a director, especially a new director, has like written, directed, starred in, and possibly even edited his own film to the point where people use pseudonyms as editors because it's you know they know it's kind of a red flag. And I just assumed he was Hector. Well, that explains his casting. It's the director. <laughs> I'm a brilliant actor and a wonderful director, but how bad do I want this role? <laughs> and it was also a little bit of my my problem with the movie is that he is he's a deeply unappealing actor uh, and also he's a, he's kind of for what we know of Hector he's also kind of an unappealing person as far as I could tell is he sick in some way it seems like the wife is doting on him in the beginning he takes a nap is he ill in some way does that yeah. matter I I don't I it seems like he got back from work right because he's driving back from Madrid and he's gone to the supermarket or the like the their version of Walmart whatever it is he's having a tough day right everything fell out of the back of the car yeah, and he's in a suit, so I, I don't know if it's just he had a long day at work and he has he's taking a nap after. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, there's the director seems not particularly interested in in who this guy is, right? We don't we don't learn that much about him, and what we know about him is he's <laughs> he's a peeping tom, <laughs> um, and he's also not particularly interested in helping his wife out around the house. <laughs> There's often usually um, a bit of a cliche with the the leaving the phone recording that I don't, I, unless I missed it, doesn't really ever play out to being anything. But that's that's kind of a trope that like, you know, especially they really like 
focused on the phone laying there. Like we were all aware it was still recording. Uh, and I don't know if that ever really came to anything that I, unless I missed it. Yeah, it actually did play out a little bit because um, th that's when he started making out with his wife right after that. So I think they didn't really focus in on it, but you might've heard some moans or something. And that was like, oh, this stranger's with my wife. I think that's the only, I don't oh, think it was- he's listening to it. Yeah, too. I don't think it hit hard in the movie, but that is, I think, where they were going. I'm just used that. to the American ones where they would kick you between the eyes. Oh, no, you're, 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 you're hearing it. And he's got it up on his phone and you see his face like, like yeah, angry and crying. <laughs> the American yeah. remake has like full-on moaning. Or... Yes, yes. But I, I think that's the one. But you're right. It wasn't a, a large payoff, but it, it, that, that was why that sequence was there. You know what's funny about this too? Uh, a lot of, Tom, your feedback with the uh, lead male. I, I did not have this strong disdain like you have. Um, is he the best character I've ever witnessed? No, but I feel like he was kind of supposed to be a bit of an oaf, just kind of going through the day. So I, I think I just took it for what it was because of his role in this movie. And again, I'm not saying he's this lovable, deep, rich character, but I think that's why I just kind of gave it a pass. He's a creep, though. He, he's a creepy Listen, guy. He was looking through I mean, his there's binoculars, a difference between and somebody just happened to be topless in the woods. I mean, which which is fair. Anybody. Like that's an act he didn't mean to do. But then he he wanders into the woods to go get another look. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't want to defend him, but maybe right, Rosie eyes glasses. Maybe he was going to make sure she was okay. I think so because he's <laughs> that's what I that's how I guarded. Yeah. You know, now it could go either yeah, way. A woman is is like. <laughs> biting her thumb sexually and, and undressing she really needs this guy's help i think it, I, I think it's left ambiguous at best <laughs> yeah and he's also so you know like so he's he's yeah and he's kind of dopey when it comes to um should he stay in the facility or not which granted we could throw that up to to lack of knowledge but then you know you see him with the girl and you know, regardless of whether he's determined to do the action, he's still doing the action of making this girl strip off all her clothes. He couldn't uh, help know. it. He had no free will. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But he's still doing I it, know. right? I, and we're still associating it's the, it's, the... It's odd. Yeah. And, and on top of that, what do we know about this guy? I mean, one, somebody in The Guardian was writing about this, saying that, you know, you have three different versions of this guy and that the, the potential here you know, is that you, you'd see three different facets of this person, right? That somehow each, each iteration of Hector would give you a different insight into who Hector is, who, the, who, the, who this Venn space, the, who, what is in the Venn space which all three Hectors share. Um, and it doesn't really do that. It's entirely in service of plot mechanism, which in one case is fine, but it also... It, it can only inspire interest in the plot mechanism and not in the character development. All right. And that concludes our movie quiz. Congratulations, Ryan, with five points. Uh, well done, Nick and Tom. Nick, you had four points and Tom, you had two. I am the um, worst. Yeah. There's also the, the give me mm -hmm. one, but that that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, you like how he downplayed that one. Thanks for rubbing that in. <laughs> just, <yeah. laughs> Good job, Ryan. You got us. You got us. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick moment for a commercial break, but we'll be right back with some movie rant because I'm sure we have some other thoughts regarding this film. See you in a moment.
It's time for Guess That Song, Whistling Edition. I'll whistle a song, and you guess what it is. Here we go. If you guessed Video Killed the Radio Star by the Bugles, you're right. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rent. So I read um, in some article that I'm sure you guys also managed to, to flip through. It sounds like you all did a lot of reading too. But the girl had Schrodinger's cat on her T-shirt. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that that's interesting because you would think that this movie is evidence that Schrodinger's cat is 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 kind of moot <laughs> by virtue of this but i didn't realize that was on her t-shirt i was looking at it back going I, I couldn't even tell it was a cat i thought it was like a yeah yeah i didn't notice it till i yeah. read it okay i didn't yeah so the, the the schrodinger's cat is the um is a kind of mind experiment where this cat is in a box and no one can see the cat in the box and there is a um sort of a, a a string with a, a string attached to a gun on the trigger of the gun. And if one atom kind of dissolves, it pulls the, the string, the trigger goes off and kills the cat. However, because subatomic particles are in quantum states and the nature of the particle can only be solidified 
that means it can only be in one state or another based upon the observer. When the cat is in the box, the cat is in a quantum state between life and death. So the cat is never alive or dead. It's, it's in a quantum state between those things, all because it's predicated upon where this particle is. Um, and, and so the idea with, with Schrodinger's cat is that observation sort of makes locality. And since we experience reality as a kind of collection of localities, therefore, you know, uh, the reality we experience is sort of observer dependent. We sort of make our reality, right? We're not just, we're not just people in the world. It, it's sort of more coming out of our consciousness than our consciousness is a, a blank Lockean receiver of it. How am I doing? <laughs> Yeah, that seems, yeah, that sounds very, no, it was great, but it, it sounds very contrary to how things actually portrayed in the movie. And the only thing I can think of is that because she represents that she ends up dying, maybe they're trying to say they killed the cat. <laughs> you know, that is not the truth. That's the only way I can interpret this. I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts. Yeah, that's an interesting interpretation. It, it kind of goes against what Schrodinger's cat is all about. But at, uh, from, at one point in time, from Hector's perspective, his wife was dead and the girl was alive. But then at another point, when he observed it more closely, the girl was dead and his wife was alive. So, yeah, maybe that's the only the, the only challenge to that is, regardless of his observation, she did. <laughs> Neither one of those. Yeah, there's an objective kind of world that isn't based upon what Hector does or observes. So it seems it seems contrary. Yeah. Yeah, we could even try to say he's in this little confined box. But I, I, I think it's if anything, I'm I think they're saying that if she was a believer in that and she didn't make it, that that's not doesn't hold true. That's the only way I can really interpret it. What else did that article say? I mean, a lot of the article was, it was called, I mean, you could Google it. it was like, I think it might've been slash film, which made me actually click on it. Cause I was like, ah, oh, this is might be sort of legit or at least from like a geek culture perspective. Um, so people that have seen a lot of time travel movies and, you know, are gonna explain. And it wasn't so much that, it, but um, there was a lot of just, you know, their idea of what explaining the film. So like, this is what's happening now. Um, and then the ending explained was just like, he's accepted the determinism at the end. And like, that's where, and he, and he's safe. And there's an element of safety that like he has his wife and like, that's, that's the best he can do at that point. Yeah, may, maybe there are two paradoxes. Time travel and Schrodinger's cat are, are both paradoxes. That could be the link. To what we're currently talking about. But earlier, Ryan jokingly made a reference to what would happen if they made an American version of this. Uh, this is with the phone. So at one point, Tom Cruise was attached to do an American remake of this film. Now, what a film that's that perfect. would have been. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I, I don't think it made it. <laughs> Watching him get... Yeah. Get the crap kicked out of him. <laughs> I was going to say, I think David Cronenberg was even attached to direct at one point, that makes which sense. would have been, I, I think, probably a better awesome. movie. Yeah. Um, Cronenberg is, is uh, you know, not, not always my favorite director, but he's he's always interesting. Although a higher budget could have killed this movie. Yeah. Yeah, because I think you're right that uh, everyone was saying the fact of what they were making the most of what they had 
that always does add a nice element to the film. And it was crisp it, for what it was. Like it, I thought it was visually pleasing. I didn't have any problem with that or the sets. I, I kind of, I do really enjoy when you do have, KJ talked about this before, a limited cast and it works. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the, I, I mean, I'm sure Ryan, you could talk to this, uh, but the limits that that budgets place upon creative people often bring out a, a more creative, you know, a, a better spirit, better creativity, because it's constrained. Um, you know, it's it's kind of it's it's the the manager has to kind of join with the creative person to to make something, um, and it's often a, a better product as a consequence. I am also in, usually think that the uh, the foreign original tends to be better not not in every cases but I, I in my opinion most cases just there's this there is an element of you know the, for American audiences that like the definitely there's an assumption that it will need to be dumbed down into a certain degree and um, have more action sequences and have a more handsome leading man uh, and sometimes those those conventions aren't necessarily as needed in either independent films small budget films because there's nobody who's controlling that or um, in foreign films to a large extent. So there's a little bit more artistic leeway that I think foreign audiences will provide films that Americans don't have the patience for. So a film like this, again, I don't actually don't know if it's his first film. Does anyone know? Because um, it feels to me like a first film, like this is his artistic statement. He's probably thought a lot about it. Um, and again, like pulling this off with minimal financial constrictions, like not beholden to as few producers as possible. Um, but it definitely has also that, that um, artistic statement to it that feels like this is someone who thought really hard about something. It's kind of like with a band's first album and then they have the second one and they're like, it took us 10 years to make the first album and now we have to make a second one in six months. It can't possibly be as good. So this one has the feel of the 10 years in the making first first album. Yeah, he he did have an Oscar nominated short. One of his his shorts was nominated for um, for best live action short, which was... Uh, which is on YouTube. You could go see it. I think it's 7.35 in the morning, I think it's called. But it's a bit of an absurdist little piece, um, albeit grounded in, in realism, which is kind of this too, I think. This is also, has elements of, of absurdity, which I would say is action unattached to motivation. I think that would be a, a, a common characteristic in, a, in an absurdist work. Um, however, the absurdity is grounded in in realism. It's a realistic framework, at least according to the the rules of time travel as the film lays out. Well, it seems Ryan had a keen eye to understand that this was his passion and his first major uh, full-length movie. I was also going to pat myself on the back for saying I had a campy vibe when I was re-watching it. So it did have a... But, you know, I mean, 2007 was yesterday, So, but there's... There's so much now meta-ness, like Looper, where people are just so aware of the time travel tropes that this one's actually, I feel like, in the canon of like pre-Looper, like the, what the, everyone's referencing. But like these days, it's so hard to make a time travel movie with a straight face and not feel like you have to get into the meta-ness about it. So this feels like it's, even though, you know, to me at least 2007 was yesterday, it does feel like another era of like earnest, uh, earnest time travel movies that you may not be able to make today. I just was looking at our upcoming schedule and conveniently we have another one of his movies on the calendar, um, Colossal, uh, with Anne Hathaway. So I guess we'll get to explore 
another one of his movies uh, later in the year. It's a remake where Anne Hathaway plays Hector. <laughs> <laughs> she she doesn't sing "I Dream a Dream," does she? Twice because of the loop. <laughs> yeah. After Tom Cruise dropped out, she she jumped in. Is that where we got going on here? It, it's interesting, Ryan. You you bring up the kind of the the uh, the lack of a, a meta narrative, but I mean that isn't you know the, this idea that you can kind of play with the timeline is is fun uh it's, it's probably a lot more enjoyable um I, I think that like the pleasure for this is for me the, the the most pleasure i got of it was trying to figure out who the masked guy was um which you you know saw fairly early on but ryan you're also mentioning the kind of campy vibe to it it's so unnecessary for him to wear so much gauze you know um and then as soon as he does it's funny because i think what made me think i hadn't seen this movie before is when i saw the the um you know, poster image that's that's on Hoopla where I streamed it. It looks almost like a horror movie. You know, it's like a man in a trench coat, and 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 so I was like, oh, I haven't seen this. You know, like because I was uh, trying to in my head play it out as what you know, where is this as like the horror villain? You know, um, but yeah. So I I think it's like that over the topness of him with the the spy with the you know looking at himself with the this hands as eyeglasses. Um, so yeah, and and like just immediately being like, oh, that's that's him. You know, I've just figured it out. Nick figured it out sooner than I did, but it didn't take me that much longer because like that's when they kind of revealed to you. So as soon as you're you're kind of like only 20 minutes in and you feel like you figured it out. And that's like a little bit of like a time travel movie cliche. And and so there's like that element that, the, you know, they're they're kind of aware from the beginning that now you've you've you figured out the gimmick. So now it's just about exploring the gimmick. And it got much more interesting, I think, at that point. But when it was just like a, you know, a whodunit of time travel, it, it felt like kind of campy. I'm glad you brought up the um, poster because when I saw this, especially being the Halloween season, I actually thought this was a horror film when I saw that man in the trench coat, as you said, with the bandages. So when KJ later told me, like, ramping up into this that it was actually a sci-fi time travel thing it actually caught me a little bit off guard because i i did not have that thought when i initially went to sit down i did have that knowledge before i actually watched the movie and then of course that's when my brain went to okay let me figure this out and i, I don't even know how ryan i just i saw the wedding ring on him and i'm like that's the guy like because they, they, they somehow showed that and then he was beaten up and you saw his hand i'm like Okay, I got it. It's him. So I haven't seen too many horror movies. I was like, oh no, what am I going to do for the Halloween season? And then I saw the poster and I was like, oh, everybody will think this is a horror movie based on the poster. <laughs> so Are you I right? wonder if they're trying to sell it like that. It's an interesting choice. I wonder what the original poster was for 2007 or even the original Spanish poster, you know, was probably, probably had like a math problem in the fade in the back, you know, um, or like maybe the S curve with the X in a fade, <laughs> you know, classic, like this is a thinker's movie. I don't know because the, the poster I'm seeing actually has uh, Spanish writing on it. And it's the guy with the pink bandages. I mean, they're like excessively pink. Okay. And then everything else is uh, black and white grayscale. And then there's a little bit of pink on the uh, scissor and so they were always selling this as a horror movie. Yeah, like. I mean, that's a, interesting. A trip back in time from present to crime. I, 
and there are elements of horror in it so you know not every horror movie has to be like you know it sounds like you guys just watched um halloween yes yeah Yeah. so you know not that's like a classic yeah 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 but you know that not every they don't all have to have the like three screams and then the girl running upstairs you know so there's definitely you know this this has a lot of crossover with horror for sure yeah especially that third act right that third act where they're running through the house and i mean that's that could be lifted right from a horror movie it could be that I'm just desensitized <laughs> because I was like, I, I didn't get, I, I do see what you're saying there. And I think you're right. It just didn't have that impact, but maybe it was because we just watched Halloween and we're having an in-depth conversation of the slasher subgenre. <laughs> I'm a little skewed this time of year. Yeah. I was, um, I, I was expecting more slasher cause I didn't pick up that it was the, it was the same guy. And so my thought was he, when I first saw, when I first approached that scene where he gets stabbed, was that he goes back in time and now he's going to interrupt the the workings of this slasher serial killer. And so it was going to com- kind of combine genres in, in that way, although that's obviously not what happens. Um, and so I was, I was kind of on board with the, uh, with that. And it's, it's a generally creepy little get up with the, the purple bandages and when he turns to see Hector and puts his hands in front of his eyes to imitate Hector um yeah that's that's unsettling you know I, I I you know I didn't expect it to to then kind of drop that that element but I agree with you actually uh I know we referenced that point before but that was sometimes movies have a very unique element or moment and that was definitely the one for this movie when he just made that binocular thing with his real, like this guy just stabbed him. And then all of a sudden you almost have this comedic event occur. That I think leans into your campy uh, end there, Ryan, is that it's like, wait a minute, why would he do that? Like, I see you. <laughs> like that's, if He's I had- just anything, messing with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that actually, I think from this movie, if, if I'm thinking back and someone brings up this movie, that is definitely what's going to pop into my brain. I'm pretty sure that's what sold Tom Cruise on the film. He read about this. <laughs> yeah. Also, the title is interesting, which is, you know, the time crimes, um, which seems to be the same in Spanish, as far as I could tell. I'm looking at a Spanish poster. It does, because I looked to see if Kronos was the Spanish mm-hmm. title to explain why I confused it. And it's not, but it's also part of the title. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but it's like Kronos Cremes or something. Cremenes, like almost yeah, exactly. it's, it's, yeah. it is. It's, I think it's a, a literal translation. And I wonder if that was actually a stylistic choice by the director to almost try to hide the time travel element to make us think it's a scary film. Because then you're not like looking for it so maybe the fact that it was clarified to me that it is a time travel film may have changed the lens i was watching because i don't think i would have been watching for the ring i don't think i'd be watching for those elements so that could have skewed my viewing i mean it's also an interesting title in the sense of the the idea of the crime right (laughs) That, that the emphasis is on the 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 stabbing and the the kind of assault on the 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 woman um the the what are we calling your bicycle girl <laughs> is that is that it poor bicycle poor girl. bicycle girl you're gonna have a rough day today <laughs> and the kind of the emphasis on that even though the you know like or i guess the what is it so what is the crime here i guess maybe the woman yeah what is yeah. the crime yeah 
her death her death her she's kind of pulled off the building yeah um or the time machine was a crime against yeah. time dun, dun, dun. A time crime <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i i i don't know i don't know i i, I found the title presenting more questions than answering which is fine yeah. i agree with you mm -hmm. i agree with you because i was just like even after i saw it i'm like why is this time crime mm -hmm. okay especially because it rhymes it just feels like it was a bad americanization <laughs> like they're like this is catchy time crimes it rhymes perfect let's use it you know even though like the original spanish title is like a dark night in san salvador <laughs> yeah. you know they're like that'll never sell yeah <laughs> And so, no, it's like, no, that was the title. That was what they chose. It's like, yeah. okay. it's also alliterative in the Spanish. So it also has a little bit of the same kind of silliness, you know, but can we say this movie has a kind of silliness to it? Definitely. Yeah. I think Ryan, you, you're, you, you've kind of, kind of stated that since the beginning that the, you know, the, uh, this whole discussion has been, I kind of geared towards free will and determinism, which is big, big topics. Um, but the, the movie is kind of light and kind of fluffy and, you know, uh, uh, some of it kind of makes you laugh, too. Yeah, well, how about when he's, it, it's Hector 1, he's in the silo, and the lab rat says, get in this tank of water. I'm going to close <laughs> it on you. Don't worry, I'll hop in, too. Then how are they going to get out? Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with you, KJ, wholeheartedly. I'm like... Don't worry, I swear you won't drown and I'll see you in there in a second. <laughs> he like, won't find you in here because you'll already be dead. Didn't make that much. He can only see people who are not wet. My, um, the thing that made me laugh too was when Hector 2 was walking around the woods doing the thing with the binoculars, binocular eyes. <laughs> over <laughs> and to, over again. He has yeah. to wander around the woods doing this over and over again until he, um, in, until, you know, Hector 1 runs away. And he's relieved because he's like, oh, finally, this guy's gotten out of here. What I will say is I'm happy to announce that this is the second of the obscure KJ picks that I actually would recommend to someone who was interested in this specific topic. So if they were interested in like time travel type themes, I would do that. However, I will still give KJ kudos for one of his earlier picks, Castaway on the Moon, which was a Korean film that I actually would recommend to a wider audience, uh, but this one didn't make the, you know, the cut in my, uh, something that was completely off my radar that I did enjoy watching. My only other rant is for, I'm gonna plant an Easter egg for anyone else who goes to see it, which is like, by God, they owned a lot of patio furniture. Like if you look <laughs> in the background of those images, they must've had 10 table sets, like, and there's only two of them, you know, like how many chairs did they need? They had like, a wood set, a, a recliner set, plus the ones, the folding ones that, that are feature have prominently. So yeah, anyone who now is gonna go back and watch this movie to see what we're all been talking about, keep your eyes peeled for that fantastic fat patio sets. I think they were probably camping outside because the house needed so much work. So maybe that's why they needed all the furniture. I don't know. Uh, well, maybe they have a lot of uh, friends. That's my theory. <laughs> I think they left them all behind, but we'll see. Maybe they're all for the other Hectors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they work it out. They live happily ever after. Hector 27. Yeah. This movie keeps going. He just keeps going back into the that. <laughs> well, KJ, uh, again, I think everyone did thoroughly enjoy discussing this film. Uh, even if we didn't all have the same love for the main character, <laughs> uh, it was definitely a, a fun one to talk about. I'd like to congratulate 
Ryan once again for taking down this episode. Uh, well done. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. Do you have anything fun or interesting worth sharing with our audience? No, but I want to extend an invitation to anyone who comes to Tacoma, Washington to come stay with me at my Airbnb. So reach out to these hosts who get connected and please come visit beautiful Tacoma, Washington. Awesome. No, that's a great plug. Uh, KJ, well done, as always, as our amazing editor. Uh, he masterfully crafts all these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews, as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 1935, The Bride of Frankenstein. It's going to be a first watch for me. Looking forward to discussing it. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. Ryan, um, was he the guy yep. that tried to climb Mount Rainier without any training? Is that the guy I met? way back no but oh my gosh who's that <laughs> but i oh that's cool. he puked his way up yeah yeah, yeah. no that's you know, no, it's just like mount rainier is like only a two-day hike but it's like it takes like mountaineering skills like i could do that <laughs> yes so he thought he that there must be like you can look at mount rainier and it's covered in snow all the time and he's like i just assumed there was like a trail around the back that, that like everyone could just hike up and so he agreed to do it and was like way over his head and then it's high elevation so he was like vomiting and like he survived but yeah like <laughs> i left my house in that guy's care last weekend oh, so. <laughs>